0: So when is the last time that you thought about all the things that you believe in and all the things that you don't believe in? Uh, Chances are you haven't done that recently because you're just busy, you're busy living life and who has time just to sit around and think about all the things that we believe in and all the things that we don't believe in. But if you're anything like me, you have a list. Uh, There's a list of things that you have decided to believe in and there's a list of things that you've decided not to believe in. For me, I don't believe in Bigfoot. I'm sorry, I know it disappoints some of you, but I don't care how many pictures you show me. I don't care what you're selling, I'm not buying. I don't believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Nessie is not my thing. I don't believe that once upon a time, the government in order to fool the Soviet Union, that they you know, created a hoax on the American public and made it look like astronauts walked on the moon, but they really didn't, I don't believe that. I don't believe in alien abduction. I guess it's possible, but until they actually kidnap a theoretical physicist from MIT instead of a dirt farmer from the middle of America with no teeth, and that's who they decide to take as the ambassador of Earth to the intergalactic conference of life from other planets, No, thank you. Um, I don't believe in that miracle ab belt, you know, the one you can lay on the couch, eat Doritos, sip on a Coke, and and it literally sends electrical currents until you have eight pack abs like a Spartan warrior. I, I, I just, I want to believe in that, but I don't, I don't believe in flat earth. I don't believe in ghosts or leprechauns with a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I don't even believe that Elvis and Amelia Earhart are still alive, married somewhere in a beach bungalow. I don't, I don't believe that at all. And probably, you know, craziest of all, I don't believe that the COVID vaccine has a tracking device inside of it. I, I just don't. There are many more things that I don't believe in, uh, but there are some things I do believe in. I believe in Wi-Fi. Right now it's around us. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I don't even understand it. I, I can't even explain it. I mean, there's like video and songs and information and you can't see it and you can't touch it and can't smell it, but I, hey, I believe in Wi-Fi. it's incredible. I believe in sound waves and, you know, electromagnetic fields and, and I believe in energy. I mean, have you ever tried to just think about how you would describe energy to somebody? You can't even describe it, but you believe in it. I I don't even know what electricity is. I I mean, I know I probably should. You smart people are thinking, boy, he's dumber than I thought he was. But I mean, I use it and I know how to use it, but I I can't tell you what it is, but I, I believe in it. I believe in gravity. I believe in gravity so much that when I left the house this morning, I did not even tether myself to something heavy in fear that I would float off into oblivion. I believe in natural laws. I believe in objective truth, I believe in moral truth, and this is not gonna come as a shock because I do what I do, I, I believe in God. And my point is everybody has a list of things that they believe in and they don't believe in. In other words, everyone has faith. Now you, you may be here on Easter Sunday and you may have showed up and, and somebody asked you, hey, are you a person of faith? No, I'm not a person of faith. Everyone has faith. Everybody is a person of faith. Everybody has faith and exercises a faith of some kind in some way. For example, you decided to put faith in your vehicle today that it would get you to the Creek Church. So you trusted, you believed, you had faith, you got in and congratulations it paid off, but you had faith. You, you didn't consider a real possibility that you may not make it, but but you trusted, you believed, you had faith. And then you walked in the building here at London or you walked in the building there at Williamsburg or Somerset and and you just walked in with faith and confidence and belief totally believing that this building and that building was not gonna collapse with you inside of it. You didn't even give it a second thought. You hadn't thought about that until I just mentioned it. Now you're kind of worried about it. Just, well, I don't know. I mean, but you had faith. And then, I mean, with all the swagger that a person of faith can have, you walked up to the seat that you're in and you didn't even think about it. You just sat down with confidence of belief absolutely believing, trusting, having faith that that chair was gonna do what it was created to do and it was gonna support your blessed assurance, no matter what. Everybody has faith, everybody exercises faith. Matter of fact, this week you've driven across bridges as an act of trust, as an act of faith, as an act of belief. This one's kind of crazy. You've eaten food made by somebody you don't know. And paid them for it. Now, if somebody would have come to your house this week, knocked on your door, and you opened the door and found a complete stranger and said, Hey, I made your family dinner tonight. You say thank you, you close the door, and you put it in the trash. But you do that all the time and you pay for it. You you washed your hair this week, hopefully, with shampoo. And, and you, can't even, you can't even pronounce the ingredients. And you trusted and believed and had faith that it was gonna do what it was supposed to do without causing your hair to fall out or without causing any kind of sickness to you. You took medication this week and you had no idea who made it or where it was made or who oversaw the process. Everybody has faith. So here on Easter weekend, here on Easter Sunday, what a great time to ask this question. What does it mean to have faith in God? If everybody has faith and we're exercising faith, trust, and belief all the time, what does it mean to have faith in God? Does it merely mean that we believe that God exists? So, if a person believes that God is or God exists, they can say, Hey, I've got faith in God. Or is there more to it than that? Is is there a list of things that we have to be able to check off in order to say, Okay, now I have faith in God? And to take it a bit further, what do Christians mean when Christians talk about faith in Christ? Or, you know, when the preacher says, Do you believe in Jesus? You know, that person came to work one time and. You know, they said, I've been thinking about this. Let's go have coffee. And then, you know, it was kind of awkward. They said, do you believe in Jesus? And it's like, I don't, I'm not even sure if I know what that means. You know, so what does it mean to have faith in Christ? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? You know, what, what does it mean to trust Jesus? Or what, what do they mean by the Christian faith? And is the Christian faith different than a non-Christian's faith? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about faith and the man who wrote almost half of the New Testament, a guy by the name of the apostle Paul, who hated Christians, hated Jesus until he became a follower of Jesus. He said this in Ephesians chapter two at verse eight, he said, by grace, by God's grace, we have been saved. And then he adds this part, through faith. He says, we are saved by grace through faith. And I don't know about you, but but that feels important, if we are saved, saved from sin, saved from self, saved from hell, saved from whatever it is that we're saved from, if we're saved, if we're rescued, if it's through faith, that, that feels important. But Paul didn't make it up on his own, he got it from Jesus and Jesus in John chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And the one who believes in me or trusts in me or has faith in me, he will live. She will live. And that's pretty good. That's good news in itself. But then he took it a step further and he said, they will live even though they shall die. So Jesus said that belief and faith and trust in him in some way assures us, guarantees us of life after death, that in some way we receive eternal life by belief or faith or trust. John, who was an apostle of Jesus, who was a fisherman, who wrote the first, second, and third books of John, who wrote the book of the Revelation and then wrote the fourth biography of Jesus called the Gospel of John. He said this in John chapter 1, verse 12 in the prologue, the introduction of his gospel, he said this, to as many as did receive him, speaking of Christ, to as many that did receive Jesus, to those who believed upon his name, to them he gave the power or the right or the privilege to become, the children of God, so faith and belief and confidence in some way makes us a part of God's family and God becomes our father. And then he gets to the end of his gospel and he says, okay, let me tell you why I wrote this, why I told you about all those miracles and all the sermons and all the stories. He said, these things have I written to you that you might believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, again, the Bible has a lot to say about faith and you probably could even tell some things that the Bible says about faith, but it seems to me that the scriptures teach that faith is what tethers us to God. It's what connects us to God. It's that faith is in some way, the space where God meets us, where an infinite infallible God meets with finite fallible people, that faith is where God connects with us. So again, let me ask the question a bit more specifically, what does it mean to have faith in Christ? Because we need to understand this word, especially on Easter because faith seems to be one of the most abused, misused, confused ideas in all of the world, especially the religious world. Because oftentimes religious leaders, you know, people like me or you know, people who wear robes or people you know seem to be, you know, a bit higher and a bit holier than everybody else, they love to make faith seem mysterious at times or elusive or too complicated for common folk to understand. And then some folks come along and they try to just dumb faith down and some folks make it so complicated, we just assume we can't understand it or some people just dumb it down so much. It's like, well, if it's, if it's that easy, if it's that simple, then you know, I, I don't even know what, what good it is. So what does it mean to have faith? Well, first of all, faith is not a feeling. So if you're here and you don't claim faith because you've never had a feeling, Please know that faith isn't a feeling. It's not a shiver up the spine. It's not a tingle down the leg. It's not a sensation. It's not an emotion. It's not Holy Ghost goose pimples all up and down your neck. I don't even know if that's a thing, but I've heard about them. It's not a gut feeling. It's not intuition. Faith isn't a feeling. Faith is also not a force. It's not mind over matter. It's not something magical or mysterious that, that makes good things happen in your life or keeps bad things from happening in your life. Faith doesn't make God do things that God doesn't want to do. And I know that this is kind of uncomfortable for, for us to think about and maybe go against some of the things you've heard or you thought you heard, but faith does not change God's mind. It's not like God decides, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. And then we pray about it. And God says, that's not what I'm gonna do. And then we look at God, and say, but I look at my faith, look at my faith and God looks down, that he's got the faith thing again. I, okay, I'm changing my mind. You know, it's not a way to bribe God. It doesn't make God our genie in a bottle or a puppet on a string. That's why some of you, you decided a long time ago, God wasn't for you. The church wasn't for you. Faith wasn't for you because somebody told you, pray about your mom. She's got cancer. Pray about your dad. Pray about your sister, your brother, that person you love. If you'll have enough faith, if you'll have enough faith, if you'll have enough faith, God will move. God will work. And you tried to muster all the faith that you could ever have, but God did nothing. So you assumed that the problem was either with faith or with you or with God or with all of it. But here's the thing, faith isn't a force. Force. Faith isn't a fixer. It doesn't fix irresponsibility. A person can be financially irresponsible and they can have all the faith in the world and faith is not gonna fix financial irresponsibility or relational irresponsibility. Faith doesn't fix the consequences of free will and free choice. I still get to do what I want to do and you do what I want to do and everybody in the world gets to do what they want to do. And sometimes that's nasty and ugly and painful and violent and unjust. And faith doesn't fix the consequences of a free world. It doesn't change what somebody did to you back in college or what your parents allowed to happen to you or what happened in your home once upon a time. It doesn't change any of that. Doesn't fix all the woes of life because people with faith still have hurt and still experience disappointments. People with faith still get sick and people with faith still die. So faith isn't a fixer. It doesn't fix everything. Faith isn't presumption. Faith is not believing that God will, God will, God will, God will. You know, somebody said, hey, you need to pray in faith and just claim that God will, claim that God will, claim that God will, or trust that God will do this, trust that God will do this. That's not faith. Faith is not believing that God will. Faith is believing that God can and knowing that God may not. This is, this is important for some of you. Faith isn't the opposite of reason. You can have faith and believe in science. You can have faith and, and be a person of intellect. You, 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 you need to understand that faith isn't the opposite of reason. Faith begins with facts. It always does. Faith begins with facts, which makes faith the consequence of good reasons and good reasoning. It's not a giant leap into the dark or a, you know, a blind leap off a cliff. Faith is calculated. It's informed and it involves our brain. And then this brings us right into where we wanna stay at today. Faith isn't certainty. Certainty leads to dogmatism. It it keeps us stuck in closed-mindedness, which makes us ignorant. It keeps us, certainty keeps us from asking questions, from being curious. It it keeps us from being uninterested in new information or, or new perspectives. Certainty by its very definition, it negates faith. Wherever there is faith, There's not certainty or it wouldn't be faith. And wherever there is certainty, there's no need for faith because you're just just certain. So if you were told once upon a time that the goal of faith was to be certain and you never felt certain, so you thought, boy, I'm not good at faith or faith is just not for me. Faith isn't certainty. Certainty extinguishes faith. And on the flip side of the same idea, faith isn't freedom from doubt. Doubt has always been an important part of faith because it's doubt that pushes us to investigate, to explore, to ask questions. It's doubt that keeps me open to the possibility that you might be right and I might be wrong. It's doubt that keeps me from assuming that I know everything that there is to know. It keeps me from settling onto lousy answers for really important questions. So when you put these two together, faith isn't the presence of certainty, nor is it the absence of doubt. So. With that foundation, I want to introduce us to a man today who is willing to do and who was willing to do what very few of us will ever be willing to do because of how extraordinarily unsettling and uncomfortable it is. I want to introduce you to a man who questioned, who was willing to doubt his most closely held beliefs and convictions, the beliefs and convictions that were fundamental to who he was and how he saw the world, a man who was open to the possibility that he might be wrong, a man who was so humble and confident that he questioned the very belief system that he attached his identity to, that he questioned the very religious system that that he loved and that he had even personally profited from, a man who remained open to truth, perhaps new truth, inconvenient truth, unpopular truth, A man who is willing to ask and entertain life's most most perplexing question. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong about my beliefs? What if I'm wrong about my convictions? Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, don't ever be afraid of this question. Because as a Jesus follower, we believe that Jesus was the embodiment of the truth. He said, I am the life, I am the truth, I am the way. He, He said all of those things, but we don't have to be afraid of the truth because we believe that God is truth. And we believe that wherever we follow truth, we follow in the direction that leads us closer to God. So don't ever be afraid of asking the question, what if I'm wrong? This is the only way that you can grow in the knowledge of Jesus. You know, Peter said, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the truth. And the only way that you can continue to gather new information is to always continue to ask the question, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm not seeing this right? But if you're here today, and this is is who I really wanna speak to If you're here today and once upon a time, you decided I don't believe in God. I don't have faith in God. I don't have faith in Christ. I don't believe all of that stuff. I I, I don't believe in Easter. I don't have faith in the whole Easter story. I'm just, I checked out on that a long time ago. I wanna dare you, I wanna challenge you. I wanna encourage you to not be afraid and not be too proud and not be so certain that you're not willing to ask the question, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong about all of that? What if I'm wrong about God? What if I'm wrong about Jesus? What if I'm wrong about Easter and an empty tomb and what that means? What if I'm wrong? I want you to take your cue from a man by the name of Nicodemus where John says, now there was a man who was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, if you need a a quick refresher about Pharisees, Pharisees by and large, they hated Jesus. They didn't like Jesus at all. They saw him as a threat because he upended almost all of their traditions. He healed on the Sabbath. He touched lepers when he wasn't supposed to. He hung out with sinners. Everybody that the Pharisees said was unholy, unwelcome, unclean, unloved. That's who Jesus showed up and sided with and he became a friend of sinners. And so when they looked at Jesus, they just couldn't stand Jesus. He, was, he seemed to be for everything they were against and he was against everything they were for and, and they just, they didn't like him. And almost all of the Pharisees were certain about Jesus. They had no doubts at all about Jesus. They had decided that Jesus was public enemy number one, that Jesus was maybe full of the devil, that Jesus was crazy or some type of lunatic, but they'd made up their mind, they were certain, they had no doubts about Jesus. Most had made up their mind, most of them were certain, but there was a small group of Pharisees, a small group of Pharisees that had remained open, that had remained curious, a small group of Pharisees that had been watching Jesus from afar, and they had questions. When Jesus was threatening to most of the Pharisees, to them, this small group of Pharisees, he was intriguing because they wondered if they could be wrong about Jesus. They wondered if Jesus might be who he claimed to be. So they were not so certain that they stopped asking questions. They were not so certain that they stopped investigating or exploring or pursuing. And so this small group of Pharisees, they decided that, hey, we need to ask some questions of Jesus. So we're going to elect Nicodemus to be our spokesman. So we're gonna send Nicodemus and we're gonna send him to go talk to Jesus. He was a Pharisee, he he was a member of the Supreme Court, the the Sanhedrin. So when you think about Nicodemus, think power, think influence, uh, think Supreme Court justice. Uh, Think a man who is the who's who of his day. He has climbed through the ranks and he is part of the elite of the elite. The Sanhedrin, which was the 70 most powerful people in all of Israel. He's a scholar, he's a politician, he's respected, he's revered, and he's elected by this small group of people who's curious about Jesus, to go ask the most important question of all, who is this Jesus? And by the way, this is the most important question any of us will ever ask or try to answer. This is the most important question that you will ever explore, that you will ever pursue, be curious about, investigate. They wanted to know who is this Jesus? And it said that he, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night Now, a lot has been made of the fact that he came at night. You know, was he ashamed? Was he afraid of being seen with Jesus? And and that's possible, but it's also possible that, you know, in that day, it was customary to have very deep theological discussions late at night. And, And this is a giant of an intellect, Nicodemus, and he's talking to Jesus. And so their conversation's a bit heady. And so maybe they just wanted some privacy away from a large group of people, or maybe Jesus was just busy. You know, Jesus, when can I get in to see you? Well, you know, I've got a leper coming by at seven. I got a blind man at 9.30. I got to feed a few thousand people at noon. Prostitute at 1.30. Uh, I got a tax collector. I, I can't get to you really until the sun goes down. Okay, well put me down and I'll be there. So it says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know this is a statement of faith. This is a statement of belief or confidence. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Now." This was the boundary of their belief. This was the extent of their faith. We know that you are a teacher sent from God. So how did they know? Because faith begins with facts. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing unless God was with him. So Jesus, let, let me just tell you where I'm at. Here, here's how much belief I've got right now. I'm convinced in a small group of my friends, we're convinced that you are a teacher sent from God. And the reason that we do that The reason that we believe that is because of the signs, your miracles. Your miracles are more than just miracles. It's more than just helping a blind man or a leper or or somebody. But these miracles, they're actually signs that are pointing in a direction. And so we, we are following the evidence. We are following the signs. And we are walking in the directions that the signs are pointing. And let me tell you how far we've come. We are convinced that you are a teacher sent from God. So there he is, he's curious, he's exploring, he's investigating. He says, we have questions, not me, but we have questions. They believe that Jesus is from God, but what Nicodemus is not saying, what Nicodemus has not spoken, is that in the back of his mind, he's wondering if Jesus might also be, just possibly, maybe, the long awaited Jewish, Messiah, they're curious. They're considering the possibility that he might just be. When all of their friends have made up their mind, they remain open. They're asking the question, what if we are wrong? And so they believe that Jesus is from God, but they're not sure of his relationship to God. And so, you know, Nicodemus has obviously read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People because he's, he's greasing the wheels. And he's trying to ease into this conversation because he's got questions, big questions. And so his heart's racing. You know, when you talk about these types of things, people get real emotional, people get upset real easy. So he's not real sure how this is gonna go. And so he takes a deep breath. He gets ready to open his mouth to ask the question that he came there to ask. And before he could get out words, it said, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus is like, darn you, Jesus. There you go again answering somebody's question before they have an opportunity to ask their question. Now the question that Nicodemus really wanted to ask is the question that every human being has been asking. It's the question that you've asked. It's the question that once upon a time you were curious about. It's the question that the Pharisees were asking deep in their heart, the Sadducees were asking deep in their heart, the common men and women of the day were asking in their heart. It was the question that every religion on planet earth is attempting to answer. And the question in Nicodemus's mind that he never got out was, how can I know that me and God are okay? How can I know that me and God are good? How can I know that God likes me? How can I know that God loves me? Uh, How can I know that when I die, it's gonna go well for me after death? How can I know that God accepts me? Uh, Nicodemus could say, Jesus, I'm a religious man and I'm a religious architect in my day. And I know that religion, sometimes it leaves people out there hanging by a thread and, and religious systems don't always give us confidence. And sometimes in religious systems, we never know exactly where we stand at with God. But Jesus, I, I really have come here to ask, how do we know, how can we know that we are loved and forgiven by God? And, and, and Jesus, he, he knew what was in his heart and Jesus said, Nicodemus, if you're gonna know the things that you wanna know, that you're loved, you're forgiven, that you're accepted, that God is for you and God is with you, you have to be born again. And in this moment, Jesus pulls out from Nicodemus everything he's ever stood on and stood for. He says, Nicodemus, if you're gonna understand these things, if you're going to be able to know these things, you got to be reborn. It's like, you gotta go back and start over. You you gotta go back and have a new beginning. Something has gotta change, you've gotta change. There's gotta be something that happens in your life and it's like starting over. Nicodemus, the best way I know how to tell you is that you've gotta be born again. Now, here's why this could have been a bit offensive for Nicodemus, because he was part of a religious system that was built around the idea that he was in and basically everybody else was out. And now Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, before you can ever know that you're in, before you can ever know that God loves you, that it's gonna go well for you after you die, you must be born again. And, and so Nicodemus, he's perplexed, he's a bit bothered. And so he's got a question, he says, well, how? How can someone be born when they're old? And, and he's not speaking literally, he's joining Jesus in the metaphor. He's not confused. So here's what Nicodemus is saying. Jesus, in other words, how can I go back and change at this point? How can I change my beliefs at this stage of my life? After I've lived all of my years saying I believe this, after I've spent all of my years saying this is who I am and this is what I believe, I've posted on social media, I've had big conversations with my family, how can I walk that back? How can I turn my back on my friends and family who have shared beliefs like I do? How can I shift directions at this point? How can I possibly start over? How can I reverse course? Because I've been very vocal about what I believe and where I'm at, it's who I am. So how can I change at this point? And he just keeps on going, he says, well, surely, Nicodemus says, they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Well, first of all, thank you, Nick, for loading us up with that image. And Jesus just listens and he's saying the same thing. It just feels impossible to change what I believe at this point. It feels impossible to abandon my way of thinking or to reverse course. Jesus, I'm just gonna be honest, it feels kind of impossible to admit that I was wrong. So how do I back up and say, I was wrong about all of that stuff? But it's like Nicodemus is saying, okay, let's just say I'm wrong and you're right. If you're right and I'm wrong, then how in the world can I possibly back up from everything I said I've believed? And Jesus answered, And said, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born by the water and the spirit. And he keeps on going, he says, and flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, cats have cats and dogs have dogs and people have people, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Nicodemus, God is a spirit. And if you're gonna be born into God's family, if you're gonna be born into God's kingdom, if you're gonna have a relationship with God, you gotta be born by the spirit of God into the family of God. Now, again, this is so offensive to Nicodemus because he's Jewish. I mean he's good at being good. He's moral, he's smart, he knows the Bible. I mean you, I mean he checks all the boxes. But for Nicodemus to be born Jewish meant in his mind that he was already born into the kingdom of God. It was the Gentiles. It was the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. Those people were out, but he was born into the right family and so he was in. Him and his friends were the gatekeepers of who was in the kingdom and who wasn't, who got temple access, who got sacrifices that atoned for their sins and who didn't. And so I imagine that Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, hey, think with me. Once upon a time, right, you were born into your father's house, right? You were born. You had a birthday. You were born into your father's house. Remember that, well, you don't remember it, Nicodemus, but you, you know you were born once upon a time into your father's house, right? And nothing can ever unborn you from your father's family that you were born into. Nothing can ever undo that. So Nicodemus, I'm telling you that the same thing is true about God. When you are born by a spirit into his family, there's nothing that can undo that. There's nothing that can unborn you from being in God's family. It connects you to God, you've gotta be born again. So this is not about keeping rules and this is not about commandments and this is not about being good. This is about what God wants to do for you. He wants to give you a new beginning, a new earth and, and, and he, he says, well, how in the world can this be? I don't understand. On one hand, he's a bit offended. On the other hand, he's intrigued. But listen, he doesn't allow his offense. He doesn't allow the uncomfortableness of the moment to keep him from continuing to listen, to keep him from continuing to explore and to be curious. He refuses to be certain And even though his belief system is being challenged, he refuses to pounce back. He sits there and he entertains the idea, what if I'm wrong? What if I've given my life to an idea that's not true? What if I've built my life around this framework and this worldview that's not right? What do I do? How how can all of this be? And Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is like, That's right. And I absolutely believe that that's the problem because if somebody could go to heaven and come back, they could tell us how to get to heaven. If somebody could go to heaven and come back, they could tell us what God was like, what God cared about, what was most important to God. I agree, Jesus, that's what we need. We need someone who could go to heaven and then bring us back a report and tell us how one day to get to heaven and tell us what God was like and what he's really interested in. Because in this religious system of the world, it kind of feels like we're, you know, guessing in the dark. We're feeling our way through. It's all so muddy and there's so many interpretations and so many opinions and, and versions. And there's all these elaborate, you know, elaborate religious systems and there's sacrifices and there's incense and there's. And it all, if I'm just honest, Jesus, it kind of all at times feels a bit empty. Because we still don't know where we stand at with God. And Jesus then throws the gauntlet and he says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. And Nicodemus thinks, did he just say what I think he said? Because if he just said what I think he said, that's blasphemy, but it's not blasphemy if it's true. If it's not true, it's blasphemy and it's worthy of death. But, but if it's true, This changes everything. And his mind's running in a thousand directions and and, and he's trying to figure out where to go next in this conversation. And Jesus just keeps on plowing through and Jesus says, okay, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. It's like, what? Nicodemus, you remember that story in the Old Testament? Of course he did, he had it memorized. He was a Pharisee, he was a scholar of the Old Testament text. He said, do you remember that story in Numbers 21? where the Israelites left Egypt, they'd been slaves, they left Egypt, they're on their way to the promised land, and so you know, a few hundred thousand of them decided they were gonna camp out one night and they picked a bad place because there was a lot of venomous snakes there and all of a sudden children started getting bit and women and men started getting bit and it was a pandemic of sickness and there was no help and there was no hope and people were on the verge of death and some did die and all of a sudden when the desperation reached a fevered pitch, God told Moses to do the strangest thing. Nicodemus, you remember that story? And he's like, I remember that story. You remember how God told Moses to make a, a replica of a snake made out of bronze? And then to put that bronze snake high on a pole and lift it up and to tell the nation of Israel, if you will look to this serpent, you will be healed and you will live. If you will look up in faith, if you will look up believing, you will live and not die. And that's exactly what happened. And Nicodemus, I remember that story. I remember that story. And Jesus keeps on going and says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And and Nicodemus, what do you mean lifted up? And if you're the son of man, what does that mean? And Jesus just keeps on going. He says that everyone, not just you Nicodemus, but everyone, anyone who believes, everybody say believes. One more time. Believes, not behaves. That's what Nicodemus would have thought. Jesus, you mean everyone who behaves, right? Everybody who's good enough, everybody who's moral enough, everybody who votes Republican, everybody who votes Democrat, everybody. You you, you mean good enough, right? You mean behaves. No, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, the one who is lifted up. And then he gets to that part that we've all heard. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, anybody who believes, not behaves, but believes in his name, shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this was Jesus's very delicate way of telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you've been all wrong about God for all these years. You thought God was a record keeper. You thought God was a scorekeeper, And you thought that God was up there every day when you woke up and he was writing down every little thing. And on the days where you got more right than you got wrong, God said, you're in. And then on the days where you got more wrong than you got right, God said, you're out. And then on the days where you got a lot of things wrong, God says, I'm done with you. But then if you really tried hard for a few days and you really, really, really did good, God says, okay, I'm letting you back in. And you've lived all of your life with the uncertainty of how does God feel about me and where am I at with God? And so you'd fall off the wagon, then you'd get on the wagon and you'd stay there as long as you could. And you just try to you know, white knuckle it out. And he said, you've been wrong about that all, all, all the time. Because God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And then the meeting's over. And Nicodemus goes back to his friends and he tells them about the conversation and they keep it between themselves. And Jesus' popularity continues to soar. More time passes, Jesus heals a Roman's official uh, son. And that caused some controversy because why in the world would Jesus heal an oppressor's son? He, he fed 5,000 people and there were rumors that he had walked on water and everybody's just talking about Jesus and his popularity is at an all time high. And the religious leaders, they all get together and they call an emergency meeting and, and Nicodemus and some of his friends, they're there and they don't really know what this meeting is about. A- and the religious leaders, they get up and they said, listen, this has gone far enough. We gotta stop this man. He, we've gotta stop this man before he ends us. So they sent some guards to go arrest Jesus. They said, we want you to bring Jesus back here and we're going to try him and we're going to end this today. The soldiers went away. A few hours later, they came back and Jesus. They asked the soldiers, where in the world is Jesus? They said, oh. we showed up and he was teaching and we started listening. And I'm just telling you, no man's ever spoke like this man. And after listening to him talk about God and listening to him, we just couldn't arrest him. And, and the religious leaders, the power brokers, they went crazy and they said, have you been deceived by this man as well? You're like the dilettantes, you're like the mobs, you're like these brainless people following this Nazarene around. These are cursed people. Do you see any of us Pharisees believing in Jesus? And Nicodemus is over there. His friends, they're looking at each other. You've not seen us believe in him, so I want you to go. Let's end this. And so there was a discussion and then Nicodemus, it says, spoke up. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Should we be so certain? Maybe we should be curious. Maybe we should keep asking questions. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And it was kind of a slur. And then they decided we can't settle this today. And then it says, then they all went home. And Nicodemus and his friends look at each other without saying a word, and they walk away wondering what's gonna happen next. And the story of Jesus just keeps going. Nicodemus and his friends and all the other religious leaders, they continued to follow Jesus at a distance to see what he was up to. And one day they had followed him to the Southern steps of the Temple Mount And while they were watching and listening to him teach from afar to see if they could catch him in anything and as Nicodemus and his friends were watching and curious and wondering, who is this man? All of a sudden some religious zealots brought a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery, bare breasted, threw her down at the feet of Jesus. A group, a mob there. Had stones And they looked at Jesus and said, the law of Moses said, this woman must be stoned for her adultery. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus said, I say that those of you without sin should cast the first stone. And they all walked away. And then Jesus looks at the woman and says, neither do I condemn thee, woman. Go and sin no more. And I imagine that she put herself back together and as she looked at Jesus and as he looked at her, because no man had ever looked at her with such compassion and love and respect as what Jesus had. She begins to run away and down those Southern steps and maybe just maybe Nicodemus or one of his friends, they they said, ma'am, what did he say to you? He told me that he didn't condemn me to go and sin no more. And Nicodemus looks at his friends and they think to themselves, Who would say such a thing? Who is this man? They watched him from afar when he healed a man born blind and the the feeding frenzy that ensued. And because of it, there was a whole trial and it was crazy. And then they were there outside the funeral of his best friend, Lazarus. It had been four days since he died and they were there in the crowd when Jesus walked up to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth and he raised him from the dead in front of them all and Nicodemus and his friends, they look at each other and they're wondering, could he be, might he be, who he claims to be? But the others in their certainty said, if we don't stop him now, he will destroy our temple and our nation So they called a meeting. And at that meeting, they hired witnesses to lie about Jesus and Nicodemus and his friends. They wanna speak up, but but they can't or they won't. And the religious leaders announced that they've hired a traitor. They've got somebody on the inside. His name is Judas and he's agreed to hand Jesus over. And he's told them that Thursday night, Jesus is gonna be in the garden. So they sent Roman soldiers and temple soldiers with swords and torches. And they went there at night and they arrested Jesus and they drug him to the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, the religious power broker, and to Annas, his father-in-law. And they blindfolded him and they beat him and they punched him and they mocked him. The next day they sent him over to Pilate because they didn't have the power to do what they wanted to do, which was to put this man to death. But Pilate, he was their man, and so they sent him to Pilate, and Pilate said, I, I've talked to the guy, but I find nothing wrong with this guy. He's a just man, but because you people, you're so set on something and happened to this guy, Pilate decided, I'll have him flogged. I'll have him whipped 39 times with a leather throng of metal and bone and glass. I'll have him beat within an inch of his life. I'll have his back filleted open, and then that'll be enough to satisfy them. So he had Jesus flogged and he brought Jesus front and center. And before Pilate could get very far, someone in the crowd started yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And Nicodemus and his friends, they're out there in the temple, in the temple yard and they're thinking to themselves, what? What are you talking about crucify? How could you even think such a thing? And Pilate says, I wash my hands of this man. Him, crucify him. And they dragged Jesus with the crossbeam on his back through the streets of Jerusalem to the place of the skull, Golgotha, Mount Calvary. And as the mob was following, Nicodemus and his friends, they're back in the back and they're kind of getting swept along and they're trying to look and they see blood and they hear cries and they hear cheers and and, and they're broken hearted and they're just disgusted and they're full of anxiety. They wonder how in the world, how in the world somebody's got to do something? Why didn't we stop this? And they take Jesus to Golgotha and they drive a nail in one wrist and a nail in the other and a nail through his feet. And they hoist him up on the cross and they lift him up and put it into his place. And as Nicodemus, I imagine, as he's getting there, and as he begins to cross up over the line where he can see above the crowd, as he crawls, as he walks up the hill, all of a sudden he looks up and he sees Jesus with a thief on his left and a thief on his right. He sees him bloody and beaten and bruised. And he wonders, oh my God, how did this happen? I don't believe this. This man did nothing wrong. This man didn't deserve any of this. This is a result of power politics. This is a result of the love of money. Why didn't we do something? And as he looks at Jesus hanging on the cross, I imagine that in that moment, it came back to him. He thought back to that night when he met Jesus and it felt just like yesterday. And it was almost like he could still hear Jesus say it and it clicked. He remembered that Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And it dawns on him. It dawns on him, oh my goodness, this is what he was talking about. This is what he predicted. This is what he expected. This is is what he came to do. And and his mind begins to race all throughout the Old Testament to try to, to make sense of this. And all of a sudden he thinks of that obscure passage in Isaiah 53 that they never knew what to do with anyway. And he thought of the words of the prophet where it says, surely he has took up our pain. Surely he has borne our suffering yet. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. And Nicodemus is there and he's looking up and it all becomes clear. And as the disciples are losing their faith, Nicodemus is finding his. Jesus died, his disciples scattered. Another secret follower of Jesus, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate, maybe even bribed Pilate to release the body. Normally they would take the body to the Valley of Gehenna and leave it for the birds and the animals to devour. But he went to Pilate and said, let us give this man a just burial and Pilate allowed it. And John says that Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus. The man who had earlier visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds at the place where Jesus was crucified. And there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. A typical Jewish burial required one pound. Nicodemus brought 75. Scholars say that it cost in today's money, 200 to $250,000. Nicodemus had decided to give Jesus the burial of a king. And he publicly identified his life. He took a risk, he risked his standing his status, his power, his influence. And he and Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus and wrapped it and put it in a tomb and made sure the stone was placed in front of the door. And that was on Friday, but very early on the first day of the week, as women went to the tomb, they found the stone had been rolled away And an angel appeared to them and said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. And the women told the disciples, they became eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus and they told the world and the world has never been the same. And I don't know this to be true, but I imagine that when word got back to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're not gonna believe it. Nicodemus, you're not gonna believe it. The women went to the tomb and they said the stone was rolled away and Jesus had been raised and now his disciples are saying that they they are seeing him alive. And I imagine that Nicodemus might've chuckled and said, of course he is, of course he is. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Father, speak to us in this moment, would you? As only you can. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, and if you're here in London or Williamsburg or Somerset, I, if you're here and you're open, you're curious, you've had questions, and maybe once upon a time you had decided that you were finished with faith. You, Jesus was not for you, but somewhere during today, you felt something welling up on the inside that something was coming to life. That faith seemed to be springing up. Jesus said that for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes, Paul said by grace through faith, we are saved. I wanna give you an opportunity to pray a simple prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can whisper it in your heart to say, Heavenly Father, right now, The best way I know how I confess that I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He was buried and he was raised so that I could be born again into the family and the kingdom of God. To know that I know that I know that you love me, that you're for me. You're not angry with me, but you are my father. In Jesus name, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I just wanna give you an opportunity in all of our campuses. If you pray that prayer and you meant it, I'm not gonna ask you to do anything else, but just just a moment. If you prayed and meant that prayer, I want you to slip up a hand to say, Trevor, I prayed that and I meant it. There's a hand, there's a hand, there's a hand, there's another hand, there's another another hand and another hand and another hand and another hand and another hand. Anybody else, you just slip up a hand and say, I prayed that, I meant it. I see you back in the back. There's another, I see you. At our campuses, our campus pastors are watching right now, just slip up a hand, there's another. Anybody else, you just slip it up, say, today I placed my faith in Jesus, I prayed that prayer and I meant it with all of my heart, you just slip it up, there's another. Anybody else, a moment longer. Father, I pray that those who have taken a step, I pray that they will let somebody know today Thank you that you said, whoever believes. Thank you for those who just received eternal life. Thank you for those who placed their faith in Jesus. And the rest of us, will put our hands together for those who decided to trust Christ.